Good afternoon, guys. Thanks for coming. I told Mike that I can introduce myself, so most of you guys know me. My name is Nirav Shah. I'm one of the pulmonary critical care attendings. Um, have a research interest in temperature modulation and lung injury, and kind of got into this topic working with Jeff Hasday and started extrapolating some of the data we found in the lab to, to hypothermia as well. A few years ago, we were lucky to have Neeraj Bajadia come from New York to head up our neuro ICU here and realize that from a clinical perspective, he has a tremendous interest in, in temperature modulation. And so with our basic science interest and the clinical interest, I think it's a nice hub here that we're putting together a group of people that are interested in temperature. The goal for today's talk is to, to give you kind of an update on therapeutic hypothermia with some of the literature that's come out recently and some of the background. And then Neeraj is going to talk about the neuroprognostication um, that happens in some of these patients as well. So we made sure, since this was a talk about hypothermia, to make sure they lowered the room temperature of this room down by 10 degrees. So I apologize for that, but it uh, gives you a flavor for what we're going to talk about today. Um, so in terms of cooling, we talk about hypothermia, and we really can divide hypothermia into different, different uh, levels. So mild hypothermia, which is really what we're going to talk about today, is 32 to 35 degrees. And then there's moderate, severe, and profound. And I think that when you look at the literature, and I'm not going to talk about this literature, but when you talk, look at the literature, there's clearly a difference between what mild hypothermia can do versus what moderate and severe hypothermia can do and what the complications arise as you get into more um, severe and profound hypothermia. The other part of cooling is fever suppression, and there's been a lot of uh, stuff in the literature lately over the last couple of years about fever control and fever suppression, especially in some septic patients, and then in my interest in particular in lung injury patients. Um, and so th this is the terminology to give you kind of the background of what we're going to talk about. So when you hear therapeutic hypothermia, uh, it also goes by some, some different names. So induced hypothermia, protective hypothermia, and then targeted temperature management. So these, these terms, while they, they're used interchangeably, can have subtle nu nuances as to what they actually mean. And you can see kind of as people talk in the literature and some of the studies that we're going to talk about, um, the latest stuff is talking about targeted temperature management, and that was the Nielsen paper, which we'll talk about. So Therapeutic hypothermia is something that's been around for a long time. Um, in fact, uh, it has its origins, if you will, in, in, in Baltimore with Frank Spencer, um, and then with uh, Peter, Peter uh, Saffer up at Pitt, who, who's one of his, one of his protégés, um, uh, Sam Tisherman, is now here, and we'll talk about some of the stuff that Sam's doing as well. But what really moved hypothermia forward was the the invention of ICUs. And so all of us here today are, are um, some, some way or form related to critical care medicine. And really, that's what made therapeutic hypothermia more successful. And that was because patients got more standardized care. The side effects of hypothermia were more easily manageable. And in addition, as ICUs kind of formed, also the, the techniques and the, and the um, technology changed as well. So cooling devices and techniques and monitoring all improved at the same time, allowing us to be able to cool patients more effectively. So this is my only slide on physiology. Um, one form of this talk has a lot of basic science in it. I took all of that out today because really the focus is on clinically what, what are we doing and what's the update. So temperature, um, basically for each degree Celsius that you drop the temperature, you drop cerebral metabolism by 6 to 10%. Coupled with that, the metabolic rate goes down to 50 to 60% of normal at 32 degrees Celsius. And oxygen consumption, as you can imagine, in CO2 production also dropped to 50 to 65% of normal at 32 degrees. Ischemic cells either necrose, recover, or enter an apoptotic pathway. And really, the, the key is, is what of these, which of these pathways is really causing the benefit that we're seeing with, with uh, lower temperatures? And that's a discussion for another time. And we'll, we'll talk about it at the end a little bit. So what are some of the reported uses? So can anyone tell me what the, the two evidence-proven indications are for, for uh, therapeutic hypothermia? Two evidence-proven indications. So we use it for a lot of different things, but there are two that are, that are really the, where the evidence is that it's, it's kind of absolutely certain that, the, that hypothermia plays a role. One of them? So out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with VFib, right? VFib, VTAC. Another one? It's kind of out of the realm of, of, of what we do a little bit. So out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with VFib, VTAC, and then neonatal hypoxia ischemia is the other one. So these are really the only two evidence-proven indications that say, yes, absolutely, hypothermia can make a difference. Um, but there's a new study this year that, that we're going to talk about as well. Some controversial indications, traumatic brain injury, hemorrhagic stroke, ischemic stroke, 
septic shock. So some of you guys might remember the Shortkin paper that came out in the Blue Journal a couple of years ago now where they um, used external um, devices to do fever suppression or fever control, and they showed that you could reduce uh, pressure requirement by 50% within 24 hours, and there was also a trend towards improved mortality, um, but it wasn't powered for that. And then my interest is acute lung injury. So there's a group out of Netherlands that, that's looking at this. Um, we've looked at it. We've submitted grants to, to look at this clinically, and in the lab, we're definitely seeing that, that uh, hypothermia can, can tighten up endothelial cells and prevent some lung injury um, in mouse models as well as in in vitro models. In terms of some background, so sudden cardiac death, the estimated number of -of out-of-hospital sudden cardiac deaths is about 300,000 per year in the U.S., um, the incidence is anywhere from 35 to 125 per 100,000 people, with 25% of these people being less than the age of 65. In addition, if you get return of spontaneous circulation and you're admitted to the hospital, the median survival to discharge is 7.9%, and that's in the U.S. We have a lot of room to go in terms of getting these patients to a um, a significant um, status and and being able to get um, discharged from the hospital. Favorable outcomes of those admitted to the hospitals is 11 to 48%, which means that 50 to 60 to 70 to 80% of these patients do not have a favorable favorable outcome, either neurologically or or even um, to the point of not getting discharged. So hypothermia is protective. This is a study that, that came out in 1980 when it's induced before or after during before or during an anoxic insult. It can be used as an anticonvulsant. Uh, it decreases cerebral edema after traumatic brain injury. It can be used for cerebral protection during operations involving cardiopulmonary bypass. Cardiac transplantation, so cooling an organ from 37 degrees to zero, slows metabolism by a factor of 12 to 13. And then more recently, and where Sam has kind of been on the forefront, Sam Tisherman, is suspended animation or induced hypothermia. So this is a study that was started out of Pittsburgh and is going to continue here at Shock Trauma, where they're basically comparing 10 patients that have cardiac arrest after trauma, rapidly cooling them down to 50 to 55 degrees Fahrenheit, to be able to perform whatever um, uh, surgery needs to be performed and then kind of reheat them or rewarm them up and compare them to 10 patients that don't get cooled that rapidly and see what the outcome is. Um, This is something that's very experimental and and, and kind of exciting to see if we can use temperature to slow down the body, um, suspend animation, if you will, um, in in this patient population. So in terms of treatment, there are three phases. There's the induction phase, where you rapidly bring the temperature to 32 to 34 degrees, sedate with propofol or midazolam during um, hypothermia, paralyzed to suppress heat production, the maintenance phase, where you're going to maintain the gold temperature to around 33 degrees. Um, standard is 12 to 24 hours, but the optimal duration is really not known. And at this time, you're going to be suppressing shivering. And then rewarming, which, which very clearly is one of the most dangerous periods, because you can get hypotension, cerebral edema, seizures. And the goal is to achieve normal body temperature over a longer period of time and stop sedation when the normal body temperature is achieved. So our goal is to to rapidly cool patients to 32 to 34 degrees um, and minimize the complications that are associated with cooling. We're going to maintain hypothermia with minimal fluctuations, rewarm slowly, and then after you cool someone, maintain the temperature less than 37 degrees for 48 hours. So fever in that post-cooling period really needs to be avoided. So what's the evidence behind what we are doing? So some of the, uh, the data in, in animal models, so in 1991, there was an animal model of a dog uh, model in cardiac arrest where they did 10 minutes of VF followed by five minutes of CPR before defibrillation and return of spontaneous circulation. And they showed that there was a significant benefit at 72 hours when mild hypothermia was induced within 15 minutes of return of spontaneous circulation and maintained for 60 minutes. In a study by Kuboyama, um, using also a dog model, the benefit of hypothermia diminished if the induction was delayed by 15 minutes after return of spontaneous circulation. And in this case, the, the uh, histology showed a decrease in the neurologic injury despite um, the delay. Uh, so the, the question of neuroprotection is still kind of, kind of out there. Um, this study was, uh, was published in the 90s where benefit was limited with moderate hypothermia. So if you, if you got moderate to severe to profound hypothermia, um, you got arrhythmias, infections, coagulation problems. Um, Animal experiments demonstrated that mild hypothermia, what we're talking about, 32 to 34 degrees Celsius, was much safer than than moderate to severe hypothermia. And you got protective and resuscitative effects on the brain after cardiac arrest. So in 96, um, Peter Saffer published this 
this paper showing animal studies that showed improved cerebral resuscitation um, from cardiac arrest in dogs with mild hyperthermia plus blood flow promotion. And then Zhao et al. showed in, in the uh, emergency medicine literature in 98 that mild protective and resuscitative hypothermia um, was successful in cardiac arrest in rats. This led to some small clinical trials. Um, Bernard et al. Uh, in the emergency medicine literature in 97, Felberg in, in 2001, and then Yanagawa in 1998 that basically showed that there was some benefit in these small trials of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, which then led to the two randomized control trials that we all quoted for years, um, and that was the Bernard study and the, and the HACA study that were published back-to-back -back in the New England Journal in 2002. Um, and we're going to go into more details on those studies. And then there was a, a quote-unquote negative recent study, um, which has prompted us to, to think about this all over again, and that was the Nielsen study with uh, targeted temperature management at 33 degrees versus 36 degrees. So going into detail, the Bernard study was an Australian multi-centered study. Uh, they randomized on odd and even days, and, and it wasn't blinded. The primary outcome was survival to hospital discharge with sufficiently good neurologic function to be sent home or to a rehab facility. Secondary outcomes included hemodynamic, biochemical, and hematologic effects of hypothermia. Cooling began pre-hospital with ice packs. They maintained 33 degrees for 12 hours and then rewarmed over only six hours to 36 degrees. All patients got aspirin, heparin, thrombolytics, and angioplasty if it was indicated. All patients received a lidocaine drip to prevent arrhythmias for 24 hours, and patients were formally assessed by rehab. And what they showed was when you looked at the hypothermia group, 49% of the patients had normal or minimal disability or moderate disability versus only 26% of the patients in the normothermia group. So the p-value for this was 0.046. The um, number needed to treat was four. So if you treated four patients, you could get a benefit here. The HACA study was a randomized trial in 2002, hypothermia versus normothermia. Inclusion criteria was out-of-hospital cardiac arrest due to VF. Exclusion was cardiogenic shock. Hypothermia group got 32 to 34 degrees for 24 hours, and they were rewarmed over eight hours. They assessed over 3,000 patients. They included 275, and 137 were in the hypothermia group, and 138 in the normothermia group. Their primary outcome was favorable neurologic outcome within six months, and their secondary outcomes were overall mortality at six months and the rate of complication during the first seven days after cardiac arrest. And what they showed, basically, if you, if you look at the, uh, at the graph here, was that survival in the hypothermia group was much better than in the normothermia group. So if you looked at favorable neurologic outcome, normothermia versus hypothermia, the p-value was 0.009, and then death, 76 deaths out of 138 versus 56 deaths, and that was 0.02. So this data all kind of made us think we should be cooling our patients out of hospital cardiac arrest. The thing that happened after this was that we started extrapolating this to a lot of different injuries. So we said, well, if it works for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, it surely must work for in-hospital cardiac arrest. If it works for VF and VT, surely it must work for asystole. And then a lot of data came out after that that said, maybe we can extrapolate this data to that group. So we're using it for VFVT arrest in hospital, out of hospital. A lot of places use it for asystolic or PEA arrest as well, although the data is not as good. Then came 2013, basically, in, in, in December of 2013 in the New England Journal, the Nielsen paper. And this study was extremely well done. I, I think uh, Neeraj actually um, got to hear Nielsen present his data. And, um, and one of the biggest kind of um, things that was said about this was how well they did their study. It was a prospective study. They used 36 ICUs in Europe and Australia, a variety of cooling mechanisms, uh, so it was site-dependent. Both groups were actively cooled because it's 33 versus 36 degrees. Um, sedation for about 36 hours in both groups. They used a very slow rewarming process, so 0.5 degrees Celsius per hour to get to 37 degrees. And they compa compared to past um, trials of hypothermia, patients had a higher rate of, um, of ST elevation MIs and bystander CPR and lower rates of hypotension. They had about 950 patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Um, they did not differentiate whether this was VTVT or asystole PE, and they randomized to 33 versus 36, and they looked at survival and neurologic outcome. And you can see in this, in this graph here that body temperature during the intervention period, the, uh, the 33-degree group definitely got down to 33 degrees, and then the, the group that was 36 kind of stayed between 35 and 36 and towards the end um, at 36 degrees. And when you looked at 
the curve here for survival, the probability of survival versus the days since randomization all the way up to 1,000 days, you can see that there's no difference between the 36 and 33 degree group. And when they looked at primary outcome, death at the end of the trial, 0.51. Secondary outcomes, so neurologic function at follow-up, uh, a CPC of 3 to 5, not statistically significant. Modified Rankin scale, not significant. And death at 180 days, not significant. So this brought up a lot of questions as to say, well, are we doing what we should be doing? Should we be cooling these patients? So why was there not a benefit? So the first thing you'd say is, well, maybe there's not an actual benefit for therapeutic hypothermia. That could be true, but there's a lot of data that comes before it that says that there is a benefit. So how do we, how do we kind of answer that? Well, the population was less selective. It was both shockable and non-shockable rhythms, so that was one thing that was a criticism. In addition, um, maybe it's sicker patients that need therapeutic hypothermia, because these patients had a high rate of ST elevation MIs, and they got bystander CPR, but maybe it's really the sicker patient that needs to be cooled. In addition, since 2002, we've had dramatic improvements in our ICU management and ICU care. And maybe the key is not hypothermia at all, but maybe it's aggressive fever control or temperature management. So keeping patients um, afebrile might be more important, or keeping them just under um, normothermia might be more important than bringing them down to hypothermia of, of 33 degrees. So all of these are, are, I think, valid questions that we don't have the answer to. Um, there was another study in JAMA in 2014 in January that came out that was talking about pre-hospital induction of mild hypothermia on survival and neurologic status among adults with cardiac arrest. And this was a randomized trial. They basically induced hypothermia um, pre-hospital using two liters of ice-cold normal saline in patients with a return of spontaneous circulation after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest versus standard of care. They had 5,700 patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest 2,300 were eligible, 1,364 were randomized. Out of the 1,364 that were randomized, 292 were with VF and randomized to standard care plus induction of mild hypothermia, 291 with VF to standard care alone, 396 with, without VF and getting standard care plus hypothermia, and then 380 without VF getting standard care alone. And then in the analyses, um, they included all of the patients that they uh, intended to, even though some of the patients didn't get the intervention as randomized. What they found was that pre-hospital cooling re resulted in a, a decrease in the mean core temperature by 1.2 to 1.3 degrees Celsius by hospital arrival. It reduced by one hour the time to achieve a temperature of less than 34 degrees Celsius compared with those not cold pre-hospital. And so you would say, well, maybe if we believe all the data before that the faster you cool someone, the better it is, um, maybe this is beneficial, right? So they had an increased proportion of patients re-arresting during transfer to the hospital and of pulmonary edema on the first radiograph if they were cooled pre-hospital. So basically, it was a study that said maybe we shouldn't be aggressively giving two liters of saline, ice-cold saline, to these patients to cool them to get them down to a temperature faster. Well, what about therapeutic hyperthermia in practice? Well, in 2005, it was endorsed um, to be used in unconscious adult patients with return of spontaneous circulation with, after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, saying that they should be cooled to 32 to 34 degrees for 12 to 24 hours when the initial rhythm was V-fib class 2A evidence. And similar therapy may benefit patients with non-VF arrest or for in-hospital arrest class 2B. And so AHA and ILCOR, the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation, both endorsed using, um, using therapeutic hypothermia in these patients. But in practice, only 13 to 25% of cardiac arrest patients in, in the U.S. actually receive therapeutic hypothermia. And the reasons that people attribute this to is technical difficulties. It's not mentioned in the ACLS algorithm. There's insufficient data. In addition, there, in a lot of places, there are no set protocols for rewarming, which may very well be the most important part of the whole protocol to prevent injury. So what should we do? Well, here at the University of Maryland, we, we have a hypothermia task force, so we all met and, uh, and talked about this, and I'll get into that in a minute. Um, I think that we need to standardize protocols across ICUs in the emergency department. We need to do that here at the University of Maryland. Whether someone gets cooled, whether they don't get cooled, is very much up to who's seeing the patient at that time, and we need to standardize that protocol. We also need to study what we're doing. If we're cooling these patients, we need to be drawing blood from them. We need to be looking at um, things in the lab as well as clinically as to what outcomes are. And so Neeraj and I are, are putting together an IRB to be able to have a registry to be able to look at all the patients that we, that we cool here. And then we need to take it back to the bench. There's a lot of research on microRNAs that are getting upregulated and downregulated based on temperature. There's a lot of interest in cytokines and, and what's happening in these patients. And I think that we, don't, we just don't know with conflicting data what the right answer is. The biggest question is, what shouldn't we do? 
So I think that the one lesson that I'd like to, to leave with you guys is that we shouldn't change practice completely based on one randomized study. I think we've learned in critical care medicine over and over again that that leads to bad outcomes. So a, a perfect example of that is intensive insulin therapy. When that study came out, ICUs all across um, the country and the world went to managing glucose is really tight until the data came out further that said that's not right and we shouldn't be doing that. And there were problems with that study design. The one argument for the Nielsen study is that the study was extremely well done. And so it's, it's hard to say we shouldn't kind of pay attention to that study. So the hypothermia task force met to discuss the new data. There was this new randomized control trial with Nielsen. There was also the, the saline trial. Um, what we talked about was that sometimes it's it's almost more difficult to maintain someone at 36 degrees than it is um, at 30, that should say 32 to 34, than 32 to 34 degrees. And the reality is, is that at 36 degrees, patients shiver a lot more, and you're going to have to paralyze them, sedate them even more than you do necessarily at 32 to 34 degrees. And the same equipment needs to be deployed and the same monitoring needs to be done to maintain 36 degrees as to induce 32 to 34 in most patients. So I think our take home here was we'd like to see more data. And if you can't get patients to 32 to 34 degrees because of their exclusions, then you should consider at least doing um, temperature to 36 degrees. So we have a therapeutic hypothermia tracking tool that Karen McQuillan um, uh, put together with the, with the help of the task force. And I think we need to be using this tracking tool so that we can kind of use this data to look at what we're doing and help us with the registry. So if you do cool someone, I'd encourage you to, to have the nursing folks and, and you guys work together to fill out this tracking tool so that we can look at what that data is. So this is for, uh, for Dr. Netzer here. So what, what are others doing? So I looked at uh, the University of Pennsylvania um, and their protocol. Um, and basically, they have a resuscitation team. And I think where Neeraj came from, too, they had a resuscitation team that would get called when someone needed to, to be evaluated for therapeutic hypothermia. We don't have that here at the University of Maryland, but we're interested in forming it. Um, and basically, what they say is, based upon new evidence in a large European clinical trial, you should consider 36 degrees as a target for a patient whom otherwise would be excluded from the temperature, targeted temperature um, management protocol of 33 degrees. And these patients can be treated to 36 degrees for 24 hours, followed by standard of care. And I think that that's kind of where we're headed too. That that you know you need to think about cooling all of these patients. You need to go through the criteria. You need to look at the tracking tool that we have. You need to look at the protocol that's online. And then if someone gets excluded from 33 degrees, maybe we should be thinking about at least cooling them to 36 degrees. So with that, I'm going to pass on to Neeraj. Yeah, do you, do you guys want to ask any questions now? Yes. Yeah, so it is it is on the internet, but when what we're hoping to do is basically have it on the machines. So if you called for cooling someone, that the tracking tool would be there as well as the protocol that's online would be there so that you could just roll when the machine's delivered to the unit, you can log it, you can put all the information that you need there, and it has what we believe is the is the proper way to do this and how to manage these patients because there's a lot of nuances in terms of what kind of sedation to use, what kind of paralytic to use and that kind of stuff. Yeah, Mike. Yeah, so so we are using it in P. I, I do use it in PA arrest. I think the data is not clear as to as to whether it works or not, or if there's a benefit. But the group of diseases that cause a PA arrest is so heterogeneous versus what causes a VFVT arrest is usually pretty straightforward. Um, I think that the ability that if you look at the times of codes for PA arrests, they're generally a lot longer than the codes for VFVT arrests. And so I think that the data is going to be skewed by the time that you're you're the time it takes to get return of spontaneous circulation. The biggest thing I think is that it doesn't hurt to, if you get return of spontaneous circulation and you control the, if you do mild hypothermia, you, you don't hurt the patient. You know, you, you, it might increase the amount of time before you can prognosticate as to whether they're going to have a neurologic outcome or not. But in my practice, I would say I would cool those patients. Just breaking away a yeah, absolutely, and 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 Neeraj can touch on what what they do as well, or what his what his practice is. But the cooling starts in the ED, continues to the cath lab, and then back to the unit where they're going to be. The faster you can cool someone, the better, unless it's ice cold sailing in the field. Okay. In, in light of the six data, do you have the data for the temperature in the control room in the Does anybody look at that? Yeah, they have. So so yeah, you want to? Oh, go ahead. 
basically in the that was one of the critiques was that the uh, the Hawke study in particular had temp graphs look very similar to the Nielsen. In the control group, it was they had a mean temperature of about 38, which is what the natural history of cardiac arrest is. Uh, in the first 72 hours, you almost always develop a low-grade fever in those patients if you don't do something. So that was one of the critiques that the Nielsen group took to heart, and that's why they designed it the way they did, because there really wasn't a normothermia versus hypothermia study until the Nielsen study. The Hawke study was a hypothermia versus mild fever study. Yeah, I think temperature for the for in this case, I mean, I think the biggest take home was make sure your protocol after you rewarm that you're preventing fever in that post rewarming period. Absolutely. Yeah. Seventy two hours. Yeah. That's the other thing. As a group, we talked about that our TTM management really should be seventy two hours. Uh, and if you look at the fever curves in the hypothermia and the normothermia group in Nielsen, they did about almost 40 hours of aggressive temperature management followed by about another two days of, uh, a day and a half, two days of controlled normothermia. And if you go back to the original data from the Hakka group before they actually did the study, they did an area under the curve analysis and found that the temperature area under the curve for the first 72 hours is what was the most sensitive predictor of outcome. So if you, you know, looking at all the pre-hypothermia data and what the Nielsen group has done, I think talking about 72, 96 hours of keeping somebody on a device, whether it be hypo or normal therapy. And, and not thinking about their neuro status, as, as Neeraj was going to say, um, during that time. You know, a lot of people are in a hurry to say, are they going to wake up? <laughs> Everyone kind of needs to, to, no pun intended, chill out, right? Yeah, sorry to keep uh, asking You're not sorry. Yeah, it's a good question. They didn't tease that out, but but I think that it, it's a valid point. I think that the other thing is how you induce hypothermia might make all the difference in the world, right? So um, these patients, two liters of ice-cold saline after return of spontaneous circulation could be an even greater shock to them than than, uh, than not. And so I think that um, while it's important to cool fast, how we cool, I think, is important too. Yeah, and I, I think the other things that you have to look at in the the Seattle studies and other groups that have looked at this is their time to ROSC and time to getting to the hospital. Uh, in Kings County, if you look at those times and compare them to what we do in our metro area, uh, it's significantly different. Uh, they're, they're much faster at getting to patients. The, the incidence of bystander CPR is much higher in Seattle than it is anywhere I've ever lived, and so uh, I'd like to have my cardiac arrest there. Uh, and, and so, um, so I mean, there's a lot of other factors that we shouldn't ignore that are important in determining brain outcome after cardiac arrest. Uh, it's not, not just about the temperature, so. Yeah, and, and that's a great segue into to Neeraj's talk, which is neuromonitoring and prognostication after cardiac arrest. Thanks. So, and just, just uh, kind of building on that a little bit, uh, just going back into the original studies uh, that were done in 2002 now, uh, yeah, we, you know, as uh, Nirav did a nice job of uh, outlining the results, from a neuro neuro neurological perspective, we all had critiques from the get-go with this study and had to do with how they measured outcomes. Uh, and, you know, mortality is a difficult endpoint because of right for withdrawal of care. So we all know this, uh, that if you have a severe brain injury uh, and you withdraw care, uh, that, in, for example, in our neuro-ICU month-to-month M&Ms, we don't really talk about mortalities because they were usually family-driven and uh, lifestyle-driven based on quality of life decisions. We talk about morbidities. Uh, but in this study, to compare mortality difference for cardiac arrest, they didn't really talk about what they did with withdrawal of care. 
Nielsen did a much better job of uh, addressing that in his study. And then the idea of the CPC measure, which is the uh, cerebral performance score uh, or category scoring system in the Hakka study was developed out of Safford's lab. So the Hakka group, the, the lead in the Hakka group was a, a Safford uh, disciple. And it's really well validated in dogs. Uh, but this is the first time it was actually studied in humans uh, as, a, as an outcome measure in a large randomized control trial. So we, of course, had a problem with that. Uh, and then the Bernard study used a very subjective measure. Uh, if somebody could go home, it's a great measure. I mean, if somebody can go home, of course they had a great outcome, home or rehab. But we all know that at least the way we work here, going to rehab versus home, there's a lot of other factors that play into it, uh, you know, insurance status and so on and other things. So, you know, for us, these were soft neurological endpoints, and that was always part of the neural critiques that we had. But then came the Nielsen study, kind of made us all kind of shut up in a sense because they did a great job of measuring uh, outcome. They, of course, found no difference in survival, which, again, for us is not a significant point, except they actually went into a lot of detail. If you look in the appendix, they have a huge appendix for this study into how they address withdrawal of care. And there was no difference in the rate of withdrawal of care in the control versus the study, uh, the study arm, intervention arm. So they actually did a nice job of addressing that fact up front, and, and there was really no difference in the data. They look at outcome multiple different ways. They use CPC, because that was what was used before. They use a modified Rankin scale, which is much more common to what we do in the neural outcomes world uh, as far as measuring outcome. But they also looked at neuropsych testing, quality of life measures, some of which has not been published yet. A lot of it hasn't been published yet. And that's going to be really interesting to see. And they didn't do it in all 1,000 patients. They did it in a subset of patients. So really, as we're seeing in every other aspect of critical care medicine, we're more concerned about quality of life, cognitive outcomes than we are anything else these days. And it will be really interesting to see as these results start to come out uh, what they found, if any difference, between the two groups. But the other thing I want to point out in terms of, uh, in terms of modified Rankin itself um, clearly, the survival benefit was there, but if you look into the modified Rankin, zero is, is essentially no deficit, and six is death. So yeah, this is where you see the 47, 49% uh, between the two groups. But basically, if you got either normothermia or hypothermia, if you didn't die, and three is a, a threshold that we use for independence, uh, if you didn't die, you were independent. So very unusual. Yeah, for a cardiac arrest population to either have a basically a binary outcome, either death or you're going to go home eventually and be independent at, at uh, what's this, a thousand days or, or six months or so. Um, so. Think about all the cardiac arrests that we've all treated here. How many of them had that type of a binary outcome? Most of them had a kind of in between outcome where they were uh, obviously, you know, if, they were, if there was no withdrawal of care, then they, they survived the illness, but they were either bed-bound with a modified ranking of four or five, but not a modified ranking of zero or one or two. Uh, and so, there, you know, there are subtle differences in the study when you look at it that may make it not externally valid to our practice and to our communities here. Another thing that uh, it's not on the slides on the previous uh, version of this talk I, I give is that if you look at the table one of that study, uh, both groups, three-quarters of them got bystander CPR. And we all know if you get bystander CPR, that in itself is going to change your outcome. Uh, and so if you do all the right things all the time, perhaps your outcome is not going to be as much driven by hypothermia. Maybe the effects of the hypothermia is not this big, but it's really small. But you have to think then, how many times do we do everything the right way? How many times do our patients get bystander CPR? How many of our patients get actually induced hypertension? Uh, in fact, the Safra paper that you quoted Remember, the second part of that paper was augmented blood flow to the brain. <clears throat> in the Hawkins study, they kept maps at about 85. That means you're going to essentially hypertense a cardiac arrest patient. So how many times do we actually do that? From a brain perspective, that actually makes a lot of sense to perfuse the brain better. You know, a map of 60, 65 is actually not good enough for a brain injury patient. So, and that's what we're talking about, how to perfuse an injured brain here. So there's a lot of factors that go into um, the... Uh, uh, looking at these studies, and we shouldn't just get focused in on just the, the temperature management piece of it. There's a whole host of things that you all do in terms of post-arrest care that impact on neural outcome. And a lot of those things are the basic things that we, sh we should all remember to do. So, so those are the kind of the critiques. Now, uh, in terms of what the algorithm is, this is currently what the algorithm is in, in, um, uh, as approved by the uh, American Academy of Neurology. Uh, at this point, 
this is a 2006 algorithm, so it's, of course, a bit old. But basically, based on their evidence-based algorithm from the data from then, if you have, a, you know, the things that you should look at on the exam are brainstem reflexes. And if you don't have any brainstem reflexes at any time, that is, absence of all brainstem reflexes, that is essentially when you should go towards brain death testing. And I don't think that's changed in, in any sense. But they also go on to say that if you really have absent corneals or pupils or eccentric posturing at day three, and this used to be our old you know, Levy criteria. Uh, I don't know how many of you remember the Levy criteria that was published in the mid-'80s. We all had these algorithms that said if you have this at day three, then your likelihood outcome is pretty poor. Uh, but then there's, on top of that, there's the concept of looking at neurophysiologic testing, presence of seizures, integrity of the reticular activating system with the SSEPs, and then biomarkers. Uh, and a threshold for biomarkers, the one that seems to have the best data, and it's uh, the most robust data, is neuron-specific enolase, which is used at many centers. I know we don't use it here. It's something I think we should consider doing. Uh, but there was a threshold that was established based on a study that greater than 33 was actually associated with poor outcome. But as I said, this is kind of outdated, and this is pre-hypothermia era, really. I mean, this, this uh, algorithm didn't incorporate any of the changes that happened in terms of management with uh, hypothermia, because really at this point, hypothermia was only a few years established in terms of the evidence. And as you heard Nero say, very few centers are still doing it, and very few centers still do it uh, the right way. So we don't really have a, a lot of great data for uh, an updated data in the hypothermia era, although I know the group that was working on this is working on a revision, uh, and hopefully we'll have a revision out this, this calendar year or early next year. So what's the pattern of brain injury after cardiac arrest? So you have two basic aspects going on. First is energy failure. So you have a profound energy failure that happens to these patients as a result of the uh, arrest itself, and what you see is all the areas that are high metabolic activity are injured. And, you know, I'm going into a little bit of a neuroanatomy here, but it's important to recognize this and understand this pattern because this pattern is what you're going to be dealing with when you're trying to assess these patients, where, where these pattern, the pattern of injury that you see. So the hippocampus is the most sensitive area, and specifically the CA1 region. And this is that region of the brain that actually helps you store new memory. So if you remember the movie Memento, that's a guy who had a cardiac arrest and had you know, very subtle uh, uh, difficulty trying to form new memory. And that, think of that every time you see somebody with a cardiac arrest and has that difficulty forming new memory. And, and when you look at the scans, you should look into those areas to see if there's injury there. Then the other areas that you have a lot of uh, neurons, basically cell bodies, is the cortex, basoganglia, and the cerebellum. So those are the areas that are most injured. And this is a typical picture of a patient, I think, that we actually recently had, uh, who's got on, on the flare sequence, uh, which looks for edema, you see that the cortex is really bright, white, and swollen. The basoganglia is really bright and swollen. The thalamus is also swollen a little bit as well. We don't have a picture slower down of the hippocampus, but that's what you'd see, and that's what you saw in this patient as well. So this is kind of the typical MRI picture that you'd see in a patient uh, post-cardiac arrest who's had significant brain injury. And then, of course, the other aspect is because you've got a patient who's arrested, you can have hypoperfusion, and you may have vascular watershed strokes in the ACA, MCA territories or MCA, PCA territories. I don't have a good scan picture of this, but I found this uh, online, and it's, it does a nice job of describing the watershed zones that you have in the ACA, MCA territory. So you might have injury kind of dotting all along the lateral ventricles here on either side, uh, as well as higher up above the ventricles between the uh, around the midline. So understanding this pattern of injury is important because that also governs what we do in terms of what we're looking for in, on, in the examination, but also in, in uh, other aspects of the diagnostic testing that, we're, that we think are, is necessary. So the neuro exam itself still remains kind of the best predictor of outcomes uh, for all types of brain injury. So if we were to extrapolate this to a TBI talk or any other talk, it's still the exam that governs everything. And that's why we obsess about making sure the patient's not sedated and there's no other confounders. But the timing and, and findings vary de depending on the type of injury. We're, we're used to talking about the motor score for GCS and TBI, uh, and there's other aspects that we look for in other types of injuries for brain that, that may be most predictive. In terms of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, traditionally, we would say day three is the best time to time for robust prediction. 
the exam uh, uh, on admission is of no importance. Uh, and really in the first 48 hours is really of no importance. It's not predictive either way, unless they're brain dead. That's really the one time it's obviously useful. But really there's no real utility of a neuro exam in the first 24, 48 hours. And I think in the area of hypothermia, even out to 72, 96 hours, it's really confounded by temperature and all the sedation that you're doing. So early hypothermia, uh, or air of hypothermia hasn't really changed this, uh, the fact that the exam is important, just the timings effect uh, is affected. And a lot of it has to do with the pharmacology of the drugs that we use that are affected by temperature, and, and therefore they hang out in the system longer uh, and affect the neuro exam. But some of that also has to do, I think, with the treatment itself. Hypothermia itself, we're seeing patients, with, for example, with that MRI scan, a brain injury pattern that may look somewhat like that, who actually start to wake up. So even our ability to predict based on MR scan, what we would have thought at day three if they have this MR scan, it's definitely predictive of poor outcome. We're starting to see patients get better from that. Uh, and, and it may be that the, the effect of hypothermia is actually uh, changing the, the exam and the timing of the recovery of the exam, uh, not just the sedation itself. So there's this nice recent study that came out in one of our journals looking at the prognosis of coma after therapeutic hypothermia. It's a prospective study, which is nicely done. It was done across 10 centers, uh, and the table doesn't come out nice. But basically, if you were to look at this uh, in detail, it's, it's a typical uh, population. Three-quarters of these patients had BTAC, BFib. Uh, 87% were out-of-hospital arrest. The time to collapse uh, to bystander CPR, though, this is an interesting. Uh, the median time is two minutes. So again, this is a European study. So I think they just are under, oh, they're more in tune to doing uh, uh, BLS than we are uh, here in America. Uh, and uh, the time to uh, collapse to ROS was 20 minutes. Uh, and the medical history was typical what you'd expect in terms of what led or what was a, uh, uh, comorbidities or uh, the cause of the cardiac arrest. So across 10 centers, they actually, uh, all these patients uh, underwent 24 hours of hypothermia. So this is the largest uh, prospective study of neural outcomes that's, uh, you know, post uh, these randomized trials that I've seen. And what we found was that nearly at one month, mortality occurred, all, all the mortality occurred in the first week due to withdrawal of care. So again, same, like, you know, it's not, not atypical from what we'd expect that if you do, a, I think, a reasonable job in, in talking with the families and, and addressing quality of life issues, then you, you may see a withdrawal of care rate that, uh, that approaches near about 80% of all the deaths that occur due to, or 85% of all the deaths that occur due to occur to cardiac arrest. Um, but then in terms of the overall disability, and you can't, I don't know if it comes across as well. Uh, I guess you can see some of it. There was a higher rate of uh, moderate disability early on, but over time, these patients did get better, uh, but still wasn't quite as good as what you saw in the Nielsen study where either you're uh, dead or uh, basically uh, living at home uh, at six months. So uh, this is, I think, more typical for what we'd expect in terms of the outcomes uh, in the so-called post-randomized control era of hypothermia. Uh, what they found in terms of reliability in neuro exam, so they went back and basically they did what we typically do as neurologists, is they did the neuro exam at 72 hours and did the typical neuro assessment of brainstem reflexes, and they found that though highly specific in terms of absent corneals pupils or motor exam, um, you know these were very specific. If you look at the specificity of all three of these things at 72 hours, uh, any one of these three, it was very specific for poor outcome. But you look at how often that actually happened only about 10 to 20, 30 percent of the time did you actually have that on exam. So that means most of these patients at 72 hours didn't have this feature. So that's, you know, it's, it comes back to this concept that three, at three days, if you have uh, brainstem wipeout near, near, you know, essentially at brain death, then it's useful, but most of our patients aren't going to be like that. Uh, and in fact, the false positive ratio, the false positive rate was not zero, and you never really want to have a false positive rate when you're talking about withdrawal of care on somebody. And the impact of sedatives, they didn't actually measure in this study. They talked about it. They didn't measure it. But that's something that I think that may have impacted on uh, perhaps why you have such a, uh, a uh, high false positive rate and also a change in the, you know, the difference between sensitivity and specificity uh, of this exam. 
But now shifting over to electrophysiological tests, so, you know, if you have an exam that's not really reliable, which I would say at day three is not reliable in hypothermia, uh, then you have to think about other things that you can do to help you understand the idea of uh, the injury pattern that you may, you may be seeing. And here we do a lot. We, I think, hopefully do more EEGs than we had been in the past. And it's important to remember EEGs are not just for seizure detection in this setting especially. While non-convulsive seizures are common in this patient population, it actually provides you a lot of information about brain health. Uh, at least when we look at the EEG, we're able to look at the pattern of injury and pattern of, of uh, reactivity of the brain. And also, in, in certainly in our neuro-ICU, when we look at it in some of our patients, we actually use it as a monitor of blood flow to the brain. You, know, you can look at quantitative mapping of these patients. And something we don't do typically in the cardiac arrest patients, but I think it's something that's worth exploring doing because especially if we're going to talk about augmenting hemodynamics for brain perfusion, you want to have some measure of brain perfusion as you're doing that. The biggest problem with EEGs is impacted by sedation, motor activity. So it's sometimes you get a lot of artifact. You may get reads that are, uh, uh, you know, or recordings that are unreadable because of that. And so this is this is the biggest limitation of this. But another e test is the semi-sensory evoke potential, which is I think underutilized uh, in the SSEPs. It's underutilized in the ICU settings. It's used primarily in the OR, uh, certainly with uh, thoracic and spine cases, where you're able to basically assess the integrity of the reticular activating system out from the periphery up into the brain stem and into the brain. You know, the sense uh, it it it's not really impacted by hypothermia in the sense that the signal will still be present or absent based on the injury itself, but hypothermia will change the latency pattern uh, for it. Uh, but really, when we're looking at it for prognosis, it's a it's a binary function, either present or absent. It's just something that the uh, tech or the person who's reading the SSCP needs to be aware of. Uh, and then, of course, just like any other electrophysiological test, it's impacted by the ambient noise and other things that are going on at the patient, in the patient's room. So sometimes it's technically difficult to, to achieve. But there's, a uh, again, a recent publication in resuscitation <clears throat> where a European group went back 10 years, uh, back to 2002 or so, uh, and looked at uh, all their patients who had EEG, all the cardiac arrests across uh, the uh, centers in Copenhagen, and about 20% of these 1,000 patients underwent EEG. There's really no difference in the pattern of why EEG was done in certain patients and not done in other patients, at least based on uh, the Table 1 data. Their de demographic pattern is about the same. Can't really see that here, but that's essentially what it shows. Um, what they found, though, was when they looked at the EEG and, and looked at who, uh, and the other thing I should mention is that the mortality rate or the outcomes are similar to what we're seeing in all the studies, about 50% mortality rate. That is 50%, uh, about 45% uh, recovery. What, we, what they looked at, though, was the actual whether or not the EEG was re reactive or had a non-suppressed EEG pattern, that is, uh, patterns that would indicate good brain health. Uh, versus those EEGs that were flat or showed no reactivity. And what they found is that the mortality rate in those who had no reactivity or were flat was much higher than the ones who had reactivity. So again, a pretty good tool to perhaps look at what's going on with the brain and the injury pattern uh, that's a, a associated with this. Now, the problem I would have with this study is, that, again, it looked at mortality. So, and this is a non-blinded study. So this may have also driven the, the, the decision-making in terms of what to do for that patient. So uh, you know, I know there are a couple groups that are looking at this prospectively, uh, in, mostly in Europe. Uh, trying to blind uh, clinicians to the EEG to really understand the true utility of it. But it's something to think about. Uh, here, when we do EEG, I don't know how often we actually do it in our cardiac arrest patients. I think it should be hooked up on, on admission to these patients uh, because what we see is not only is there a high incidence of seizures with uh, cardiac arrest, but as Nera was pointing out, during the rewarming period is when we actually see a lot of changes occurring in the brain. And that's really when you want to have an assessment of what's going on. What we would do about that uh, if we saw a sudden emergence of seizures or uh, a unhealthy brain pattern, we'd probably want to arrest that patient's rewarming at wherever they're at and either drop them down a little bit or keep them, certainly keep them where they are, but not continue to rewarm them, i.e. extending out the whole rewarming or uh, cooling period in, in general. It's something, you know, as Nara pointed out in one of the earlier slides, hypothermia is a treatment for status for seizures. We've done it occasionally, usually when we're uh, grasping at things to try and do to try and stop status, but there's there's good basic science, good electrophysiological science as to why hypothermia is helpful in terms of seizure prevention. So uh, you may actually be unmasking seizures by rewarming somebody. 
Now, what about SACP? So what it actually is as a test is you, you uh, it's a, a somatic sensory, so we're assessing the sensory motor uh, response to stimulation. And typically what we do in the ICU settings, we stimulate along the median nerve and follow the peaks and latencies of that electrical stimulus all the way up uh, at different time points in the at the elbow, up in the brachial plexus, up in the neck, uh, up into the brainstem, and out to the cortex. And what we say is if, if you get a signal that's going up to the cortex, or so-called N20 signal on both sides, that means all the neuroanatomy from out in the, in the median nerve all the way up the arm into the spine, into the brainstem, up to the cortex is intact. And that anatomy cannot be intact unless the reticular activating system is intact. And the RAS is what governs consciousness. So we say if, if there's SSCPs that are present bilaterally in N20s, then that patient is going to wake up. Now, it doesn't tell us what they're going to wake up to look like, but they are going to eventually wake up. And that's an important, for us at least, it's an important test to use when there is a patient who's not opening their eyes at the bedside on examination. Now, when, you, when people looked at this uh, in the literature, uh, they found that, and this could be a selection bias of the, literature, of the reporting, but the false positive rate has been zero. So when you have signal present bilaterally, every patient wakes up. When you have absent signal bilaterally, no patient ever wakes up. Uh, and uh, when you have signal that's present on one side, absent on the other, uh, it, it actually is about 50-50 shots. So it, it, it's a kind of a interesting test in, in terms of the way it's, it triages decisions. Some of this, again, could be, uh, you know, uh, there's no blinded studies that have demonstrated the absolute, absolute value of this, but I think at least in the way I interpret it is if I have a patient who's not opening their eyes, it's a test for us to consider, to understand, to help us talk to the family about likelihood of coming out of the coma itself. Uh, let, uh, and but though it doesn't really tell you about the quality of the re recovery beyond that. What about biomarkers for cardiac uh, CNS injury after cardiac arrest? There's really no, uh, as I could say, there's no troponin for the brain. Uh, and biomarkers, a lot, of, a lot of different biomarkers have been tested. NSE seems to be the most specific, uh, most reliable predictor. Uh, but the, you know, NSE levels after uh, cardiac arrest, uh, you know, it's a neuron-specific enolase, but it is actually also expressed in RBCs and platelets, so it's not 100% neuron-specific. Threshold of 33 was established based on this study that was uh, published actually in 2006. Uh, hypothermia has itself actually lowers NSE levels uh, in, in the lab. But interestingly enough, there are a lot of reports coming out of good outcomes with high levels of NSE. So NSE levels of 80 in, in this one case report, or not actually a case report, this case series, uh, not just an individual case, were, was the threshold at which poor outcome was associated. So again, indicating that hypothermia is, is not completely eliminating all the brain injury, but it may be changing the way we also even assess the biomarkers. I think it's you know, best utilized as a test uh, or a trend at 72 hours uh, after hypothermia. So here, uh, I think if we were to ask for it, it's a send out. It would take us about four or five days to come back. So, you know, the, what the lab has told us uh, is repeatedly is if we, as a group, continue to do this and do this on a routine basis with a high enough volume, they'll bring it in-house, and we'll actually be able to get rapid turnaround on this test. And I think, again, just like any of these other uh, diagnostic or prognostic uh, tests I'm talking about, no one test is going to make the difference, but it's going to help. So again, that's one of the things I would advocate for, is us to be able to do NSE levels in-house, but that would require us running this test on every cardiac arrest that we see. And I think at that point, the lab is, I think, is rightfully so to not commit to bringing a test in-house until we actually increase the volume. What about neuroimaging? Uh, of course, as a neurologist, I couldn't get away without talking about imaging. Uh, and so, computed, you know, CTs, uh, what's the indication prior to cardiac arrest, or prior to starting hypothermia? And I know a lot of ED groups are really concerned about inducing hypothermia on somebody who might have had a TBI or subarachnoid hemorrhage. My viewpoint on this is if they're that sick, they're that uh, uptunded or comatose from uh, a subarachnoid hemorrhage, for example, that's usually the most uh, worried, worrisome indication because if it's traumatic brain injury that's led to that, usually have other signs of trauma. But an SH that, is, that has arrested is not going to go to the OR immediately anyway. And actually, we do cool those patients uh, once they come up to the ICU. And we usually try to stabilize them for 24, 48 hours before they get to clipped coil. So in, in my viewpoint, I don't know that that in itself, that worry in itself should ever delay uh, the need for hypothermia because the, the intervention is likely not going to happen in that patient for at least a couple of days uh, due to stability. 
the admission scan, though, can help with prognosis. There are a couple reports out there, older reports, that are underutilized that actually quantitatively score uh, the white matter and allow you to pro prognosticate. Uh, this is all pre-hypothermia era, hasn't been tested in the post-hypothermia era. But MRI is certainly what we do uh, rely on a lot, uh, and it's a lot more sensitive and specific. Uh, the time range for which to do this, I think uh, the earliest would be day three, but I think uh, you know my tendency is to move this more and more out towards day five or six and in terms of understanding the injury pattern uh, uh, in the brain itself. We're looking at very specific sequences, uh, three or four different sequences that we're looking at. Here we can do additional tensor imaging, and if you ever order an MRI for cardiac arrest, please make sure that they do that. And what that allows us to look at is the white matter uh, injury, which is actually governs a lot of what happens in terms of wake up for that patient. And it's a much more detailed way to look at that. We don't uh, clinically do fMRI, uh, but that's something that uh, is being shown to be a lot more sensitive and specific uh, to uh, assess if somebody's actually going to wake up. And, and also, beyond wake up, the quality of the wake up uh, that's going to occur. Uh, but again, these studies are mo mostly done, uh, you know, early on we would do them on day three, but I think with the hypothermia error, we're extending that out to day five or six. So what we're talking about in terms of prognosis is really, a, you know, and this is a great review, I think it was one of the articles that was sent out, um, it's a multimodality assessment of prognosis. So there's no one thing that we can do to assess prognosis after any type of brain injury and cardiac arrest being this, no different. And so we are often looking at EEGs. Sometimes we uh, ask for an SACP. Here we're currently not doing biomarkers, but we rely really on the exam and, and imaging findings, uh, serial exam findings and imaging findings uh, to, to really assess what's going on with the patient. And as they show in this uh, nice chart, this is kind of what we're trying to integrate. I think they did a really nice job integrating what we try to do at the bedside when if we we're asked to come and prognosticate, which is we're looking at all these different modalities, understanding also the time at which these modalities are being assessed, day one, two versus day three to seven, and really trying to assess all of them together uh, and trying to predict outcome uh, after cardiac arrest. Um, so it's really kind of a, 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 right now, a bit of a moving target as to what we would do when, but one of the things I think we really should do is uh, protocolize this. Uh, in terms of exactly when we should do this, because the only way we're going to institutionally learn, let alone uh, externally learn, how to how to manage this is to to have it really protocol driven. So I think that's all I had to say. Thanks. Again, I can't shut up. So uh, yeah, two two things. Yeah. Uh, number one, can you discuss what your preferred medications are in terms of sedation? Um, you know, is it propofol for the quick, you know, off exam? Or do you use benzos? And um, the other part of the medication question is, do you induce uh, higher MAPs? You know, and if so, then with which medications? So that's question number one. Number two, mm -hmm. um, the uh, I guess let's just go with number one. We'll start with that. <laughs> Uh, so uh, never ever benzos unless they're seizing, uh, and so beyond that, it's really whatever else you want to use. Your choices are, I guess, limited if I say never benzos. But um, but yeah, I don't think there's uh, the original Haka study used uh, benzos just uh, as a disclosure, and and Nielsen. You know, the interesting thing is one of the things we talked about. Uh, 37 is sometimes hard, 36 is harder and 32, 34. Your need for sedation, if you go below the shivering threshold, should reduce. And your need to sedate should really get to be a, a minimal level. There's actually really nice studies actually out of UPMC where they're inducing temperatures of 32 degrees in AMI patients, and they're wide awake. Uh, and um, the only time they need sedation is on the induction time point. Uh, and so this concept of what sedation do we have to use, it's actually, you won't think about whether you need it once you've induced them. Uh, and then on rewarming, you'll probably need it as well. But uh, on maintenance phase, I think you really should minimize how much you need. Uh, don't forget to use opiates, analgesics, uh, to so, so you can also minimize your overall sedative use. Uh, but definitely don't use benzos. And as far as MAP control, you know, again, that's, it's very qualitative. You know, it depends on what's going on with the patient, what's the LV function, other factors that are playing into. So it's typical to what you – there's no preferred algorithm in my mind. Um, uh, typically, uh, whatever you'd want to use uh, to uh, make sure the MAP is uh, elevated in that patient per se.
And is it, do you trying to go for a goal, um, a percentage goal of what that person's baseline pressures? I mean, if it's many of these are chronic hypertensives, you know, and yeah. uh, is that a factor at all? And well, we, we rarely ever know that their baseline. I think it's that that's the hard part. I, I would say, you know, in my mind, uh, a map of 80, uh, I'm comfortable with. Um, uh, a map of 60, I'm less comfortable with. In terms of paralytics, is it as you needed? Know, uh, so not? when we looked at this, we had a uh, data set of uh, about 500 uh, patients. We used paralytics twice, just by example. So I, again, I don't know that you need to. But the flip side, if somebody's just if you're finding yourself at 7,500 a probe and they're just really shivering a lot, I just said the neuro exam is useless. So go ahead and paralyze so you can actually maintain temperature control and reduce shivering. So uh, I, I, I don't know that it's often necessary, but I'd rather somebody be paralyzed and cold than shivering and not cold. Uh, and so. Yeah. For those of you guys that are on the front lines, the hypothermia protocol has specific recommendations to standardize across the board. Do you cool somebody if, if, let's say in the emergency department, they're kind of moving around. Maybe they're following commands. Maybe they're not. They're intubated, you know. And unless um, unless they wake yeah. up and say, "Take this tube out of me," yeah, cool. I agree. All right. <laughs> so, okay. yeah. Anything else? All right. Thanks, you guys. All right. Thanks. 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 Thanks.